You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Jack Doyle, who I will not give you his bio because his bio is going to be the podcast. Uh, We'll walk our way through uh, some of his career highlights uh, and talk about some Things that we've never talked about before on SpyCast. I'm really excited about it. So welcome, Jack. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Vince. Uh, sounds like a fun topic to get in. Let's talk. You've had an eventful career. Uh, and, and sometimes we find ourselves doing jobs for decades that were somewhat accidental. And so I want to ask you, what got you into this field? Was this something that you wanted to do? Or did you kind of stumble into doing You know, what we'll talk about, really, kind of this remote sensing concept? Um. Well, I think you've seen in some of the notes there that I actually uh, came to Nevada uh, 51 or two years ago now, or longer. I came out in 1964 uh, from the University of Texas, and that happened because my roommate at the time uh, was a close friend I'd grown up with all the way back in grade school, and uh, one of his degrees was from MIT. And he thought that the Doc Edgerton group were an interesting bunch to work with and recommended I interview when these guys came to town. And, and uh, one thing led to another, and I ended up out here. And, and I came to town thinking I was going to be spending a lot of time with a brand-new big digital computer that they had downtown. And three days later, I had bus tickets to the test site and found myself uh, working in support of Los Alamos on the nuclear rocket program. And that was the start of it. But after uh, several years of being involved uh, as a worker bee in the direct uh, things, an opportunity came up uh, in which I was offered the job of being the department manager uh, for the uh, aerial measurement system that was pretty young at that time. It had actually started 
as a as a subcontract for the Department of Energy, they asked us to create this capability. And uh, it came about because um, in the early days with cloud tracking uh, from the test site when they were doing atmospheric testing, uh, the U.S. Geological Survey was the only uh, agency in the country that had uh, aircraft that could uh, see radiation like that in real time and could track those clouds. And uh, they asked uh, the Atomic Energy Commission to get them out of that business, that they were not in the bomb building business, and therefore they wanted the Atomic Energy Commission to take that job over themselves. And so they created this organization. And so I came in uh, uh, knowing something a little bit about it, but uh, that certainly didn't have anything to do with my own right. background. It's kind of stumbled into something that you right. turned into so, a long, long so career. So it started out with... Uh, I think 20, 24 guys uh, and uh, gals in the, in that operation, and uh, and I was the new manager there. And by the time I left uh, uh, that group in '96, um, it was like 250 people, and we had added a significant amount of capability, and a lot of things were added because of this Nest program and just emergency response in general, in addition to all of our other uh, remote sensing uh, needs. Well, let's, let's go back to the remote sensing stuff and so people can understand the importance sure. from a national security perspective. This is a time when you may not think, you know, you're not just trying to detect our atmospheric tests because in 1963 they ended. What from a national security perspective was so important about remote sensing. I mean, in your bio, you talk about the Apollo program and some of the other things that were going on during this time. So what was your your day-to-day and kind of your primary focus of looking for radiation? Like, the, was it terrorists? Was it potential um, attacks on our infrastructure from a foreign power? Was it just worried that our own radiation was going to cause problems? Well, when we started, uh, some of the early events that we got into Uh, were things where uh, Atomic Energy Commission that would later evolve into the Department of Energy uh, were asking us to to lend a hand with because of the airborne sensor capability. Um, One of the early ones that I recall in uh, 68, 69 was the uh, nuclear fuel services plant back in uh, upper New York State. And they were attempting to do some fuel element reprocessing and it turned out that didn't work out too well for them. They, they disposed of the liquid part of their waste into settling ponds uh, that were not well sealed. And uh, with our aerial survey, we were able to demonstrate that they were not well sealed. And in fact, the state of New York had discovered some deer and other animals uh, that had high levels of uh, uh, products that shouldn't have been out there, things that were a result of that processing. So that's where it started out. Then we had things like uh, the Air Force had a missile that they launched from Green River, Utah, that was supposed to impact at White Sands, and it impacted instead 400 miles south of the border in Mexico. And uh, Mexico was eager to have it leave and not remain there. So. Uh, they had hunted for it on the ground for weeks and didn't find anything. So they uh, 
they actually contacted us to see if we could come down and help and it took about three days and we found it for them so we talk about things impacting in other countries that could be problematic there's a an operation that a lot of people may not know a whole lot about in canada that had nothing to do with our our systems it had to do with soviet satellites and that's operation morning light um i was going to wait a while to get into this but we kind of segued that already sure so i want to talk about morning light because this is a fascinating operation (laughs) that has extraordinary consequences potentially um if if it was not found uh because if you want to kind of i'll let you do the talking on here but this is a a satellite system that um was in, in insanely radioactive and could well, have it, real it was an actual operating reactor yeah. which differentiated between the kind of uh, power sources that we launched with the apollo program and those kind of things that were purely passive uh, and were totally sealed and had been tested so that they could survive re-entry right we use what rtgs or is that right yep. yeah uh, radioisotope thermoelectronic generators the um, in the case of the uh, the Russian satellites, and they've actually have, have launched over the years quite a number of these. Uh, this particular uh, one had a 40 kilowatt reactor on it, and it was um, connected to a uh, piece of apparatus that was, by all definition, spy satellite, looking for ships at sea and that sort of thing. And uh, and this unit, um, the the way it operated, the whole contraption was about the size of a bus, uh, a large passenger bus like a Greyhound bus. And it was necessarily in low Earth orbit in order to get the high sensitivity. And it turned out that um, they just lost control of it uh, electronically. They, instead of being able at the end of the one or two year life of the thing, uh, they were unable to control it and they couldn't uh, explosively separate the uh, reactor from the rest of the uh, spacecraft, which would come, re-enter and burn up. And they boost the reactor into a five or six hundred year orbit, and uh, that wasn't working in this case. And so nature began to take over the physics. And on the last five or so passes of this thing before it re-entered, uh, three of those were over the United States. Right. And uh, and then that final one uh, happened to be over the Northwest Territory of Canada. And so our health physics calculation showed that the, uh, that the reactor components uh, could readily be deadly within a thousand feet of them. And so there was considerable concern and we were uh, asked by the, the White House and the National Security Council designated uh, DOE to take the lead in that operation. And this was in uh, 78, January of 78. And and so we were on standby, had aircraft loaded. We had no idea where it would land because nobody was controlling it. And it was strictly the physics that brought it in. When it hit the atmosphere, then it uh, started to burn up and that sort of thing. And so it re-entered over the west coast of Canada and then spread out over a 500-mile-long footprint. Right, it didn't just land in one place. It just scattered all over. Uh, as it melted and yeah. came apart, uh, the uh, fuel element, which were little tiny pellets, uh, that uh, little highly enriched uranium pellets, as those uh, came apart, it was like 
uh, firing a shotgun from 200,000 feet, and you had these things spread over uh, many thousands of square miles. And it's extraordinary to think how lucky we were that it was over a relatively uninhabited area yeah, the, versus yeah. Chicago or yes. New York. Or In fact, if you look at the, the traje- trajectory map that was prepared, uh, it was over Midwest and much more densely populated areas. Uh, you also had the advantage in January uh, in that part of the Canada, it was minus 30 degrees at the border, and it was minus 80 degrees up where the thing re-entered. Use the word advantage, which I think is hilarious, because that's not an advantage for you. No. Having to schlep up there and grab all this stuff. Well, none of us had ever done anything in those kind of temperatures, so our big learning curve was was the isolation. And this was all before GPS. Right. And that made a huge difference. And we we did have some systems that we had to utilize that gave us the kind of precise navigation that we needed. But uh, the first thing that was talked about uh, was using Loran. Well, the accuracy of Loran was Loran-C, which was used by the uh, services and many others, uh, was on a really good day, maybe a quarter of a mile, and on a bad day, maybe four miles. Right. And so you just couldn't, couldn't rely on that. It wasn't until years later uh, that GPS, and that was one of the technologies that we kind of always rode right on the cutting edge of, was the uh, the use of, of whatever system was out there for navigation. And we went from very crude uh, radar units that would track a single line to something more sophisticated like the inertial guidance system that was on commercial airliners and then finally to this um, localized um, microwave ranging system that we took with us and uh, and then on up to, to GPS today and GPS has just really made that part of the job thousands of times easier. All right, I mean you're looking for these tiny little pellets in the middle of the nowhere Canada and you have no right. way of really locking in on any kind of thing other than Let's walk around and use our instruments to find this. Yeah, and the most important thing to remember is that with radiation, there's nothing to uh, see, smell, feel, uh, hear, anything like that. So uh, you're strictly relying on your sensors to locate where it might be. And and so then the navigation becomes critical. If, you, if your sensor says it has seen something, then the question is, where is it? And... Uh, and so we we really rode the progression of technology in that area. Uh, the other thing that we relied on very heavily, and this gets us into the whole remote sensing thing, was the uh, the use of camera systems. We started out just using a, a bank of, uh, of four Hasselblad cameras, and we had different films in those, including an infrared film, so that uh, we could see things in infrared that you couldn't see in, in the regular natural color. But by having them mounted on a unique platform that was synchronized, um, every time you took a picture, you were taking four pictures. And so you had photos that would overlay directly on top of each other. And we learned uh, very early on that you could come up with some fascinating uh, uh, ways to interpret and understand that data. Um, One of the things that we happened to do just at a request of the uh, um, 
again, the USGS, I guess it was, was uh, when Mount St. Helens was uh, heating up before it actually had split. Uh, we overflew that uh, with those cameras and had the infrared imagery that showed the hot spots that were developing and expanding. And uh, some of those photographs even ended up in National Geographic. <laughs> that's pretty funny. Yeah, that's, that's a relatively sensitive operation. You know, you, it's not top, top secret, but you're certainly not no. doing things that are widely public, you know, publicized because there are some national security implications to this. Right, and, and we understood those, of course. Uh, everybody in our whole operation were cleared for basically everything. But uh, we, we knew in, those, in some areas, like that one, that uh, there was a public interest. Now, our aircraft overflew Mount St. Helens the, uh, the day before it erupted. And we were forever thankful that we weren't there when that right. happened because we could very easily become a casualty of that. One thing I thought was interesting, and we chatted yesterday about the fact that a lot of the equipment that you used wasn't things that people were producing. It wasn't like there was a Office of Technical Services within CIA that was creating stuff for you. You kind of had to manufacture a lot of these things yourselves. That's absolutely right. Had to design them ourselves. I mean, we needed mobile um, equipment that could be run off of batteries so that uh, we could either fly it on the airplane and, of course, hook it up to aircraft power, which was not a big deal. But even more importantly, we wanted to make some of the measurements on the ground. And so in order to uh, uh, move from just a, a radiation meter, like the yellow meters that people are familiar with from civil defense days, um, to a more sophisticated thing like a spectrometer, uh, those things had to be uh, developed from the ground up because they were not off-the-shelf items that any of the vendors at that time had. So for many years, we found ourselves inventing things, and then when these companies would see that see what we had, um, they would get into production with those things. So that was very helpful. I mean, and as time has gone on, a whole lot more of that is off the shelf available, but uh, but it certainly wasn't at, at that stage back in the uh, 70s and 80s. And there's not there's not a one size fits all thing either. I mean, you've got right alpha, beta, gamma, ray, all these different potential right. sources of radiation. I, what you mentioned, you know, I think the public or people listening would, you know, a Geiger counter, right? That's how you do. Well, that's that's only a small portion of what you're looking for. Well, there are so many uh, sources out there in the environment, uh, industrial sources, uh, natural outcroppings of things, um, and, and so. You know, it's not enough just to get a count rate that says something there looks radioactive. You really have to identify the isotopes producing that. Right. And from that, then, you know whether it's something that's significant. You know, you can immediately differentiate, is this man-made or is this uh, something that's natural? And, and so you treat the two quite differently. If it's natural, uh, you expect it to be there. I think people would be really surprised to realize how much natural background radiation. Oh yeah, is when, out when there. you go out measuring, you are going to find things, and so you have to, you know, if you're in a hurry and you think you were working a threat situation, uh, you don't have any time to resolve what it is. You need to know that right now. Right. So we had ways to do that. The other thing too that we found in doing those kind of surveys, 
that started out as a radiation survey was um, we started finding that uh, if you looked at the big sites, uh, uh, the big DOE sites and even other industrial sites uh, where they uh, uh, were working with radiation in all of its forms, including in some liquid forms, is um, sometimes we were looking for things uh, not based on the radiation signature, but on the fact that uh, we were getting an environmental signature that something was being stressed or damaged, particularly if you had underground storage tanks uh, with things. And and then there was a further spin-off out of that as we did more and more with, we, we moved from just film to scanners. Mm-hmm and to instruments that again made a real-time spectral measurement and with those kind of things then uh, not only could you see uh, hot spots or leaks or seeps or that sort of business but then you discovered that okay we can uh, we can look at camouflage and uh, features like that right where people you know it's one thing to go out and paint something in the visible color region that looks very much like the surrounding background but somewhere in the spectrum uh, it's going to stand out like a sore thumb and so you very quickly discover those and those were features where some of the other organizations would come to us and say you know we know you guys have all this equipment can you test this or demonstrate this for us and sure enough it turned out to be pretty straightforward. It was very nuanced when you said some of the other organizations. I think it's pretty obvious who you're referring to. Right, you're trying the, to the three-letter outfits. Yeah, trying to beat camouflage and find things yeah. out there. Um, you talked about morning light being 78. and 79, you actually led the response to what I think is one of the most misunderstood, quote-unquote, disasters yeah. in American history, and that's Three Mile Island. Yes. I mean, just the, the misinformation and misperception of People putting Three Mile Island and Chernobyl in the same sentence, it's extraordinary to me. Yeah, they, they actually don't compare. Uh, the main difference being that in the case of Three Mile Island, uh, the containment uh, held. It worked. It, it worked. Yeah. It did exactly what it was designed to do. It contained. And although we there was a necessity for the reactor people to release some gases, those were all coming through uh, what you call 100% uh, heap of filters, high efficiency uh, filters, and so the only radiation, excess radiation that got outside was uh, uh, the kind of radiation that doesn't interact with the body in any way. It's not retained. It's what we call noble gases, and uh, and so that was a whole t- together different thing. If you look at Chernobyl, that didn't first place didn't have a real containment. It had a big concrete building over it. And when the thing did a an immediate transient because it was out of control uh, and literally was a, a small-scale detonation, uh, it blew the roof off right. the place. And so suddenly there was no way to control it. And, and so the uh, radiation just dispersed into the atmosphere uh, uh, uncontrolled. And as the wind changed over weeks or two, it uh, went everywhere. Were you involved in any way in the, the Titan II disaster in Arkansas, um, which is so... We we actually were, were in Europe for a meeting at the time that occurred, 
and we particularly tuned into the British humor in the papers. <laughs> the farmer out there with this pointy nose thing sticking out of the back of his truck. And so even in our business, there's always the the dark humor side right. of things. Well, I mean, and that goes with, you, the, yeah. with the turf. But yeah, the uh, it turns out that that's the kind of thing that uh, a little later as we developed our equipment uh, more, uh, anytime the accident response group uh, would deploy, uh, we would come with them. And that group was led out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. But uh, if we had a, one of our stockpile weapons, which this was in that case, um, the uh, group down there would have us and others come and deploy. And of course, you're, you're looking for the item. You don't know whether it has uh, been exploded and come apart or whether it's uh, still intact. And or whether it melted and is at the bottom of the of the uh, ICBM launch chamber. Right. So uh, for a while there, there's all these uncertainties. And although we did not respond to that particular one, we certainly have responded to similar things. Uh, uh, well, let's. I mean, we've kind of skipped ahead. Let's talk about Nest a little bit because Nest is. Talk about things that are misunderstood because of pop culture. I think Nest is something that pops up in certain movies from here and there about these special operations guys armed to the teeth running yeah. around shooting bad guys trying to steal our nukes. And, and in many cases, it's it's scientists who are being sent to make sure not only is there not going to be a nuclear emergency, but in case there is. Um, yeah, we, we had two two roles out there. One was to help mitigate the problem in the first place. And number two was if if it was already uh, involved in an explosion or fire or something like that, then we would help with the consequence management side of that. My so favorite do euphemism in the world is consequence management. Right. Because it is so understated. Because, yeah, sure, Arkansas was not that big. But consequence management would also apply to an actual nuke going off somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's a much larger scale. That's obviously. quite a, yeah, a lot of more consequences to manage right. at that point. But. Well, the we had tools that were available to us before we ever left town. Uh, first of all, the Nest program was put together um, back in the 70s because it turned out in, in 1970, uh, Ted Taylor, uh, who had been a uh, weapon designer at Los Alamos during the Manhattan Project days, uh, wrote a book called The Curve of Binding Energy. And in that book, uh, it he described uh, a crude way to build a, uh, a nuclear explosive uh, using very crude, uh, almost kitchen tools to do that. Uh, it was a lot more simplified than the real world would have been. but. But the way it was laid out, it was uh, published in a series of articles in the New Yorker magazine over a period of eight or ten weeks or something like that. And uh, following that, we started to, the FBI and, and others started to get threats uh, stating that they had a, a, had, had a nuclear explosive. And after a couple of uh, deployments that were... Um, not the smoothest things in the world because we weren't organized mm -hmm. for doing that. Uh, the head of the military applications group in headquarters, uh, DOE, uh, contacted us uh, 
and uh, uh, gave us orders in Nevada to uh, create uh, some kind of a, a response element. And so uh, we dreamed up the name NEST, and, uh, and it kind of stuck. Well, but, it sort uh, of did it. The S has changed now, hasn't it? Yes, it, yes it did. To support. To support. And, and it really was always as much support as it was search. So that that what we did for real didn't change. What what we called it has changed. And while it was uh, during the days when we were actually testing weapons at the test site up until 92, um, we we had a very large workforce to draw on to, to support us in all these things. After 92, when when that went away, the size of the total workforce dropped uh, pretty significantly. And so then it was decided by headquarters to later on to, uh, to disperse that capability uh, on a more broad basis. And I'm not, I had, re, I retired from that in 96, so I'm not as up to date on, on how that came about but up until then, uh, if something like the uh, uh, Morning Light or something like uh, Three Mile Island or, or any one of a number of other smaller events occurred, uh, we became kind of the logical group to call, call on. So we, I started to say that before we would deploy on these things, uh, we would talk to the uh, atmospheric release advisory uh, capability people at Livermore who would, uh, they were using uh, large computers, supercomputer, to take the estimated uh, material that was being released. They would start with that, put in an estimate of what it was, how big it was, and what the dispersal mechanism was. And then they were tied in uh, real time to the uh, international uh, weather system and they would do modeling to show if there was a release, where would this plume go? And and they could do that from the time of the incident so that if the weather, weather conditions were changing, they could keep up with that. I always said that we called them because we didn't want to fly in and land right in the middle of the problem. Right. <laughs> and so, but the, the real world was to start getting a handle on how many people were at risk. So when we talk about consequence management, the first question is, what is the number of people and farm animals and crops that might be at risk from this release? And that size is uh, in your mind right away, how big of a deal are we dealing with? And then you uh, proceed as you get to the site then with your capability, particularly your aerial capability, uh, you can start to actually define where you really are seeing something. And the first thing we try to do is, of course, shrink the amount of area that's that has to be concerned. And we try to do that in conjunction with the local health authorities and let them communicate that to the public however they will so that uh, what you want to do is start reducing the number of people that are worrying about uh, being exposed to these right. things. Well, you have to. You had to scale your operations. Everything from like the release of gases from Three Mile Island, all the way up to somebody smuggled a multi-megaton yeah. weapon into you know, or right. that that and everything in between, right? I mean, this this is a massive project that you're asked to yeah. do. Yeah, 
Now, and, and, and of course, we uh, here in Las Vegas were not doing the whole whole thing. We were very much part of this team that consisted of uh, Los Alamos, uh, Lawrence Livermore Lab, and Sandia. And uh, and the, the Livermore people with that Iraq were a key front-end part of that operation. And even as we started to refine uh, what we knew about the event, then they could refine their uh, plumes as well, and if we could give them actual measurements, uh, they would insert those and, and readjust what they knew about it. Uh, that system was globally capable. It got used uh, when they had the, uh, you know, when Saddam Hussein set all the wells on fire in Kuwait. Uh, they used that system to help model that uh, plume dispersal that you were getting with all of the wells on fire at the same time. So they could look at things that were not radiation. They could look at oil fires or other kinds of chemical releases. And, and any of those might have been things that we might have been pulled in as well. We'll be right back after this. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. You've talked about working as a team. Now you were referring to Livermore and Sandia in Los Alamos. I imagine because of the national security implications of the work that you did, you worked very closely and you already kind of alluded to this. To the three-letter agencies, to CIA, to others, because of the more you know about potential threats coming from the outside, the better prepared you can be. And of course, these agencies can possibly use the technology that you've developed to do that work overseas. I know you can, yeah. there's limitations to what you can say, sure, sure. but can you talk a little bit about the relationship that you had at DOE with Nest, with RSL, and with some of these intelligence agencies? Well, I think... I think you start with the fact that uh, the um, the whole set of issues around radiation and, and bombs in particular, nuclear explosives or even nuclear dispersals of radioactive material, um, the, the rest of the community really looks to DOE, and I'm talking about the laboratories now, as well as our operational on the ground capabilities, uh, they look to that family of uh, experts as being the experts on those subjects. And other agencies, uh, uh, except in a limited way, made no attempt to go out and try to create uh, a base of people and experts that would be that big. And of course, the, the real value we always felt was that we were, even today, the people that are engaged in that kind of research and that kind of technology. So as it changes and we learn more about it, uh, we can, on an emergency basis, can come together, 
and support uh, some other operation. Sometimes it necessarily might involve a, a very highly skilled operator uh, to go with a piece of equipment. Uh, and so uh, to some degree we were prepared to do that and, and I assume still are. Uh, and we did some exercises with other uh, response organizations, uh, both uh, intelligence related as well as military. It was, uh, you worked with the FBI specifically uh, for five years giving this information at Quantico. I mean, that was you know, a direct relation of, of kind of providing a particular three-letter agency that works on national security issues with some of the information about what you've done on the NS side. Well, as these uh, threats kind of kept coming in, and some of them were getting more and more sophisticated, uh, the FBI itself realized uh, early on that this was uh, uh, limitation that they had and they wanted their agents to know more about it just so that when we started the initial communication on something uh, that they were better informed about uh, what kind of things did we need to know and what things could they and, and how best to share those with us so uh, they actually for several years there uh, created some special courses uh, out at the training center at uh, Quantico and they would have us come in uh, each year and talk to these groups of uh, agents that were being trained specifically and the idea was to have enough agents uh, scattered around the US uh, and other locations to, uh, to to be brought up to speed on this so they knew something about the subject and that they knew about these other resources that they could turn to for help if if need be. And of course, every time you do one of those kind of things, we also were doing a similar kind of a training uh, at the Harvard School of Public Health every summer uh, for a special program they ran uh, that was doing training for, say, the responders at reactors around the country. And, and you really let them know what resources are out there that are not something that they could go easily duplicate, but which are available uh, in the event that they uh, have some significant problem that they need help on. And, and it starts with phone calls. And uh, over the years, as a result of those things, uh, we'd get some phone calls where somebody would say, you know, I met you at so-and-so and uh, I have a question. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so then that would get you uh, started on the conversation, and then uh, we'd remind each other how we needed to do that through the professional channels so that we kept it uh, completely in channel with our respective organizations. And and uh, if they need to be reminded of who that contact was within their outfit, we usually knew that. Hmm. How much did 9-11 change kind of the path of everything being done from what RSL was doing to what Ness was doing to, you know, special projects here at the Nevada test site and, and across the board, kind of this shift to worrying about asymmetrical threats for the fancy way of talking about terrorists versus an accident or versus the, the, the Soviets launching an SLBM, you know, I, I, I and now more recently what the, uh, what Hanoi might do. Right. Well, I mean, or not, or, yeah, Point Yang, Yang, yeah. Point Yang. Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, we've kind of now back to 
some of the mentality that we had, you know, in the '60s, where there's there's a greater appreciation of the potential for some kind of an accidental launch or a detonation or again a, a dirty bomb or other things. I mean, there had been there have been thwarted terrorist attacks where there's an attempt for dirty bomb. Yeah, and those have other side issues that go with them. One, if you're doing a, a dirty bomb with basically high-level radioactive material, the the biggest threat, of course, is to the guys perpetrating right. the thing because if, if they don't have a very high skill level, uh, they will be the ones that may suffer the best, the worst consequences before they can even deploy the thing. Um, that whole area... Uh, we, we've certainly, over the years, watched the progression of the way uh, terrorist acts have gone. You know, as it started out with the attacks on the Olympic teams, uh, then you had these hijackings of airliners full of people, even the Kilivaro thing with the attack on a ship. Uh, and and after a while, those kind of faded away, and and other threats have grown over the years and we continue to watch those the whole whole community now uh, all of our intelligence uh, assets look at those things and as we hear about any new ideas in that regard that come along uh, you know we'll check our technology too to see is there something that would apply and is there something we need to add uh, if we're gonna gonna do these things I want to shift focus actually to a, a fascinating project that you, you worked on that has been worked on now by different people over decades, and that is <laughs> um, nuclear propulsion, nuclear power used to launch things into space. Um, NASA had a programs. I mean, you go back to the Orion program where they're literally going to use nuclear bombs to launch, <laughs> uh, but also you know NERVA and some of these other programs that use nuclear power as a you know, I, when nuclear energy was first figured out, the idea was this was going to be a somewhat dual use, a double-edged sword, where there was a nuclear weapons component to this, of course, a destructive right, force. Right. But there was also going to be a very positive benefit for society. We haven't necessarily realized that as much. So I think these are some of the misperceptions about nuclear power and other things like that, too. But there were a lot of attempts over the years to find very effective and positive reason ways to use nuclear power and we've seen it somewhat with like we talked about rtgs and other things like whether it's spacecraft like voyager and others going to the the ends of the you know voyager's not using solar power it's outside of the universe right it's so far away from the sun yeah, it needs the nuclear power sun ceases to be of right. any real help so how how is there an appetite certainly even in the height of the cold war where all the money was going to nuclear weapons there were problems finding funding for some of these programs that use nuclear power or even nuclear weapons to create space travel. Is there more of an appetite now, or do you see the appetite shifting back toward potentially these programs working? Uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, we do see it shifting back that way, and and it's not for the uh, launch of conventional things here in North Earth orbit. Uh, which will continue to be done with the conventional launch uh, engines. Um, we we did develop a fully working engine, the engine in the NERVA program, uh, 
and then that program was basically closed out in 72 and a lot of that had to do with the uh, cost of the the Apollo program the the event Vietnam costs and and all of that and it just it reached the point where it couldn't go any further it was a very effective working uh, engine design um, but it had a couple of very major problems the big one was in the original design concept was to be able to launch uh, with that engine and we certainly had enough thrust we could have done that but uh, as they have reviewed that uh, now into the future what they foresee is a a cluster of smaller engines maybe three uh, that would be uh, launched into orbit conventionally like the space station and then assembled uh, into a uh, working spacecraft and uh, and then you'd put the liquid hydrogen fuel supply on there and you'd put the crew and you might very well look at using that to get to Mars uh, we might very well look at using uh, one or more of those engines uh, like a tug to haul supplies back and forth to a moon base uh, where you might have a permanent moon base and so you need to bring food and water and that sort of thing and by using the uh, the nuclear engine just in space not ever try to land with it or take off with it but just to have it as your space source because the fuel supply is so much simpler right uh, it's one thing liquid hydrogen and the uh, even even to go to Mars uh, you could make the you know before you'd have to change out your nuclear fuel in that engine uh, you could make about three round trips and you just have to uh, supply more uh, liquid hydrogen. Right, because unlike chemical propellants, which basically all that thrust that you're seeing coming out that back of a rocket ship is that going bye-bye, right? Yeah. Your ability yeah, to right. actually create thrust is what's flying That's out all the you're back. Doing. Yeah, the other thing about it too is, is that uh, and NASA has always paid attention to this um, you, you look at um, they have a, a very complicated physics term that they call impulse, uh, which says a lot about how much uh, payload you can lift into to orbit or can move in outer space. And the impulse for the best, very best of the uh, chemical conventional rocket engines is somewhere like 400. And with the uh, uh, nuclear rocket, even back at the NERVA days, uh, the impulse number was like 800. So basically for the same size and weight package, you could lift twice as much uh, payload. And in today's world, if you really apply all of the advances in the nuclear reactor technology, um, going to, uh, say, one of these uh, liquid uh, uh, fuel engines, uh, liquid nuclear fuel, uh, you could maybe hit an efficiency that might be up in the 1200 range or higher. And so they are looking, at least three of the big NASA labs these days are looking seriously at nuclear power as one of the options for your deep space kind of operations. If you're going to go to Mars, you're going to take a very heavy package out to Jupiter or to Saturn. And of course, the other thing about those is you, with that power source, you don't have to slingshot off of Venus and back around the Earth and all that to to get up enough momentum to get you there. You can actually uh, uh, 
do that, you know, go a straight line flight. And that what that does is it shortens your uh, trip, can cut it uh, from two years to six months. Right. A lot of the worries when they were talking about things like ANP, aircraft nuclear propulsion back, was the shielding issue of keeping a crew alive. I mean, there's enough radiation in space as it is. Right, but if you're in space, uh, the whole issue there changes a lot because if you're here in the atmosphere, uh, the radiation is going to be bouncing off of all of that, and so the shielding issue becomes much bigger. If you're out in space, then you don't have anything for that radiation to, to bounce off of, literally. And so you just have to have shielding between right, where that engine line. is and, yeah. and the crew. And if furthermore you put your hydrogen fuel supply between you and the crew, uh, that's a great shield too. And, and weight uh, doesn't matter quite as much in space no, as it would. No, it wouldn't once you get it up there. Right. Putting a massive lead brick on an aircraft right. inside the atmosphere makes life very oh, difficult. Yeah. yeah, that makes it unusable. Yeah. So I, I'm wondering if, if the reason that this hasn't moved forward faster than it has or that it didn't back during the Nerva days, do you think that there is a unsolvable, and I'm going to use that word, I hope that you say no, but an unsolvable problem, uh, the people's perception of nuclear energy well i i think you're gonna take a big step forward if you can say look we're we're gonna launch the, uh, the reactor and all that cold without turning it on uh, and get it into space before we turn it on that's a big step right there because you don't have the uh, i mean people's image of spacecraft coming apart during launch is always going to be there and this avoids that because as long as you've never turned the thing on, you don't have a big radiation issue. So that's the big first step. The other thing is, is that at the time of those programs, one of the reasons that program shut down was had to do uh, with cost and with the fact that from a technology standpoint, uh, we were not technically ready to go any further than a trip to the moon. We weren't ready to go to, to Mars or send very complex packages to uh, the moons of Jupiter, Saturn, and uh, now we are. And so as we think about those now, then the issue becomes, well, uh, a chemical rocket to do those things is absolutely huge, and it's, the materials you're using are so complex that there's no way to make those uh, at the end of your trip for a return or right. something like that. So you, you needed something like the... Uh, the nuclear engine that would give you longer legs and so i think all those things uh, can be o overcome let me wrap this up by asking you uh, going back to you know, the nuclear verification side there's obviously a lot of conversation and we don't have to get specific about countries but a lot of conversation about emerging nuclear powers or the worries about emerging nuclear powers and a lot of people don't quite understand verification like why we think we can actually tell if someone's becoming an emerging nuclear power or how far ahead North Korea is in their system. I mean, the, the last North Korean underground test, they tried to boast that it was a fusion bomb, a thermonuclear one, within an hour. We said, nope, nice try. It's exactly the same you know, seismic readouts and even spectroscopic readouts as your fission test that you did before. Are we in a position where... We have the technology basically to know 
just about what anybody's doing and verification process. I mean, that's where I, we can get specific. Let's talk about Iran. Um, you know, the idea that we can keep track of what is going on through what we would call mass in the intelligence world or remote sensing, that seems to be pretty close to reality at this point. We've gotten pretty good at that. What do you think? I think that's true. Um, we can we can certainly um, differentiate pretty well between sizes of, of yields that we get. And, of course, there's other parts of that signature. Uh, I mean, it's critical that the people trying to do that are doing it in a contained fashion. Uh, they need to do it because that's what the world demands, but they also need to do it because if there is any release of anything, uh, that'll be our best clue of what just happened. Right. And, uh, and there are a variety of ways to, to capture that. Um, and I mean, and it's not all, I mean, certainly nest is only a small portion of that, that operation. We may help analyze what comes out, but, but we're don't need to be part of the front end of it. But, um, yeah, the the real critical factor is the access to the nuclear material that it takes to do one of those things. And as far as the technology, it's pretty much out there at this stage of the game uh, with enough highly trained uh, physicists and whatnot to know how to make the basic steps. <clears throat> but then trying to get something that's small enough and light enough that you could transport it somewhere. We can deliver it. That's yeah. a whole different story. Now that gets a lot more complicated right. to do. And so you look at you look at everything. I mean, you look at all the interrelated pieces, and it certainly helps to have that be kind of an integrated team looking at that so that you say, okay, they, in their tests they look like they've created a, a bomb that's a certain size and then the question is how much does it really weigh and what kind of configuration is it in uh, and will it really fit on any of the, uh, the launch platforms that they have for delivering it of course they don't have to deliver it with a with a rocket if they could make one that was small enough they could take it apart maybe and move it in pieces right and, and get it next to the target and then put it back together again. That's really the one that you'd worry about the most, I think. We talked a little bit about, and then then we'll wrap up. I've taken way too much of your time, but I could talk about this stuff forever. We talked about working as a team within not only the nuclear weapons community, but also within the USIC and others. What about your 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 equivalents overseas, with the, within the five the allied nations working together? Was there a lot of international cooperation in developing a the technology to do a lot of this, but also kind of breaking up the world? You talk about worldwide coverage, but is there a a British version of Nest that was around around the same time, or a French version, or German, or even the Russians to try to do this? Um, some of that I would have trouble uh, elaborating, but uh, the short answer is yes. Um, there are other capabilities out there, and I think the biggest advantage is having uh, having us try to work together. There are many things that keep us from doing that, of course, with uh, depending on international relations at the time. Um, and we still, you know, our Atomic Energy Act says we don't uh, share uh, 
detailed nuclear technology with anybody uh, except through very prescribed pathways. And really the only country that we've historically done that with has been the UK. And we have a 50-year history of of working with them on on testing. A lot of their testing was done in conjunction with us Mm -hmm. here at the test site and out in the Pacific in the early days. But but other than, than that one country... Uh, we're much more limited in what we could share with others, but we certainly have uh, tried to collaborate and coordinate with others if, if if they were interested in doing that. Well, Jack, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us on Spycast. This is a fascinating conversation, and we really truly appreciate your time. Well, it's been very interesting, and, and my first one is one of these kind of things. I've certainly visited with others but never to do a podcast so we're very very thrilled to be your first so we appreciate (laughs) it thank you great thank you for listening to spycast remember every tuesday we'll post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and itunes if you have any questions or comments about spycast email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our itunes page you can also follow us on Twitter at INTL Spycast. That's INTL Spycast. Talk to you next week.